Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third episode of the PO Forecast Extra. I'm your host, Freddie Webb, and yes, I apologise for the no main show. It didn't help that I was supposed to be travelling back to York on the same day, and then Hugh and Andy weren't around. But you are going to get the extra, and that's going to appear this Monday, and then there will be a main show as well. Joining me this week is a proper musician, but he's also a complete XG Din. It's Joff Taylor. How's it going, man? Good evening. XG Din, I like that. Yeah, I'm doing all right, thanks. Had a busy weekend. Had a wedding gig in Devon last night, Saturday night, and my parents are based there, so it's nice to see them. And yeah, back in Brighton now for the week ahead, but yeah, doing pretty well, thanks. Awesome, dude. I'm su- I'm surprised you're able to sing with all the Cornish pasties down your throat. But anyway, we're, I've got to introduce another young analyst, but also another XG Din. It's Jack Hancock. How's it going? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm more XG pervert at this point than XG Din. But no, I'm good. I, I was coached this morning. Uh, I came home exhausted, uh, tired, and then prepped a podcast or prepped my part of the podcast. Anyway, I can't claim to do. I can't claim all the credit. But to the one dad whose son I coach every Sunday morning, I do apologise if it was rubbish this morning. I tried my best. I'll see you in two weeks' time when I'm back from Butlins. Brilliant, brilliant. And there's a reason I've introduced everybody as XG Dins, but we'll go through that in a bit. Obviously, due to the recent stuff about expected goals on Twitter, pretty much immediately after the League Cup game against Peterborough, we'll be going through XG a little bit, but then we'll be going through Pompey going forward, why they struggled in previous games, but against Peterborough in the in the league. And properly with the 3-1 win, they seemed a little bit better, but we're going through that in more detail. And then we put a question out to you lot, which is, is John Massino getting the most out of his players? And we'll be analysing his tactical philosophy so far and if any tweaks need to be made. And then we'll do a little deep dive into our newest signing, Faustino or Tino Andurin, who joined pretty much just before deadline day and was the last bit of business Pompey did. Right. Expected goals. Obviously, some people don't like expected goals. We, we tweeted about it. And well, when I tweet about something, it must kick off because I don't like doing it whatsoever. Are you guys still surprised that some people are either dismissive or, you know, they just think it's a load of nonsense? I'm surprised that that's still a thing, to be honest. I'm not massively surprised just because well let's say i'm an xg din i'm a fan of expected goals i kind of get it i for my master's degree have created my own expected goals models taken a look at a bunch of statistical modeling and stuff like that and it works however the way it has been used in the media i think three seasons ago on match of the day it was kind of snuck in as a little stat when they do the stats reel when they're interviewing managers and players at the end and it was kind of introduced with no real explanation, the same on Sky Sports, I think, and kind of introducing a new statistic like that that isn't at first, you know, that easy to understand without kind of context and preparation probably wasn't the way to go about it. And so therefore, yeah, there is confusion about it. People are sceptical of new things and, you know, rightly so sometimes, but it is something that is kind of proven to work when you use it correctly and when it's yeah presented correctly so i'm not still not too surprised because people like us we're on this podcast chatting about stuff like this we've got a passion for it so we're always going to kind of look at the kind of deeper meaning behind it okay what makes up an expected goals model how do all these things work how's that even calculated in the first place but people who don't want to understand it and just enjoy football for what it is that's perfectly fine but the way it's been presented has probably contributed to that kind of skepticism about it which i actually think is totally understandable So for those who don't know, it may be some people, I'm going to give you as simple of a definition of expected goals as I can. 
Basically, all it does is it measures the rough quality of a chance that somebody has from a shot, and it boils it down into a single number. It does that by comparing a shot to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of shots beforehand in an algorithm. So when the person who's taking down the data looks at a shot, pulls that clip into an algorithm, and it spits out a number, and all that does is it takes away the bias that we may have of who is taking the shot. It doesn't matter if Cristiano Ronaldo is taking a shot from six yards or if I'm doing it, the XG may spit out a similar number. So it's supposed to take away that innate bias that we have of certain players, but also to give a rough indicator of a team's, well, attacking threat in a game. That's basically all it's supposed to do. It's not a deserve to win meter It doesn't mean that just because a team has 3.45 expected goals that they're supposed to crush a team that has 0.5 or whatever. All it is is just a measure of the quality of shots they have had. It's still up to the players to actually score those goals and execute them properly. A big example of that was Pompey against Cheltenham, that 0-0 draw where we struggled to break down 10 men. Pompey were given 2.16 expected goals by Scout in that game, largely due to the header from Regan Poole from about five yards out and Christian Sadie ballooning it over the bar from about six yards again in the penalty area. Now, if a team has high expected goals in a game, it's a rough indicator that they're threatening. But what you need to do and what we always say is watch the game as well. Do both. Watch the game. Watch every single shot that an XG model is put against. And then you can have a better idea. It's been used by football clubs extensively now, more so as we go through the years. Some of the biggest innovators are Brentford and Brighton, and they use it to sign players, especially attacking players in this case, who are quite undervalued. Matthew Benham and Tony Bloom, the owners of both of those clubs, they have built entire businesses, and they're called Smart Odds and Star Lizard. And all they do is they beat the bookies, and effectively, rich people go to them, they put in a lot of money, and then the company effectively bets for them. And some of the data they use to figure that out is XG of players and teams and stuff that's a lot more detailed as well. So it's been used by people to make a shed load of money, but also by clubs to buy talented players that are going under the radar and to set up their tactics to essentially try and make them more effective going forward. It's not something that's completely pulled out of the air. It's not it's not been created by virgins living in their basement alone. It's apart from Joff. Apart from Joff, obviously. It is genuinely something that's built up now over the past five years, maybe even eight years or more now. And it's got a lot of backing to it. So yeah, it's not something that's completely useless. It is again effectively think of it like another stat and compare it to something. For example, we always say that teams don't deserve to win games if they have more shots on target, more possession, more corners. XG, to me, is similar, but it is very useful in figuring out how threatening a team is going forward. But obviously, it still has its flaws. Jack, have I missed anything in that? No, you actually stole all my points. Um, I've got one, actually. And as you were saying on the deserve to win a meter, it's it's not that, you know. Let's say there's a game... Team A has 20 shots and an XG of one. Team B have 10 shots and an XG of one. Who's getting better value out of their shots and out of their possession? It's Team B. 
which is why you then do a further deep dive, which I'm sure would annoy more people. And you look at XG per shot, for example, but kind of segueing this into performance, an XG underperformance can indicate a few things. So the player could be getting into, into good areas, but not scoring. The player could be unlucky, or maybe the player is good at getting into positions, but just isn't a good finisher. So at that point, if you see a, a player is hugely underperforming their XG, you then investigate and vice versa, right? If they're hugely over, overperforming, you then investigate further. But one stat I really like actually, and it's not XG, but it is XA. So we've gone back a few letters, which is expected assists. And I find it's really valuable because it gives a really good representation of how a player is supplying their teammates. As high XG underperformance can be due to them being let down by poor finishing. So as always, you can't just take the data on face value. And also you can't just watch a game because that could be a one-off performance or a thing could be running hot or, or maybe they're just underperforming their underlying numbers. But yeah, I think Fred, you, uh, you, you, you covered basically everything. And, and yeah, I think actually is a really valuable stat as is XA, but it can be poorly explained, poorly implemented and overused. Yeah, exactly. And I try to do it in a way that's easy to understand because obviously when someone sees expected goals, they will obviously equate it to actual goals. I'm like, oh, well, it's only the goals that matter for obvious reasons. But again, it's a rough indicator of how a team is performing, like we said, and it can be different. For example, we look, uh, I had an argument with somebody years ago. This was Gabe Sutton, actually, friend of the show, when Kenny Jackett was the manager of Pompey, and he basically looked at Pompey's XG and said, hang on, why are you saying that Pompey are rubbish going forward, but their XG in, is okay generally and XG per 90? I think George Ellett from Not Talk 20 had a similar problem when I think I said that at one point Pompey were anemic going forward. And then I said, well, look at these games against the top six and then the XG in those games, the average was way lower than the teams further down the table. And most Pompey fans can just equate to that just by watching rather than just looking at the stats alone. So in that instance... I had a bit more mileage than those guys purely because I watched a lot of Pompey games and they cover the football league as a whole. So they can't watch everybody's games. It's impossible. So that fits into what we've said earlier. It's a good tool to look at to then go on to look at something else to figure out how Pompey are playing and also how teams are playing. Players, for example, who underperform their XG, John Marquis underperform his XG pretty much nearly every season when he played for Pompey, actually. Another big one was like Brandon Handlon in League One, if you remember him, who played for Wickham. He always does that. But then again, if a player overperforms his XG, for example, so for example, he has 10 goals, but 5 XG, you can look at his shots and go, okay, is it a luck thing? Is he just scoring a load of screamers because he's got great technique? Those are the sorts of things that you, you need to look at. Have I missed anything, Joff? I think we've covered it. In as much of a nutshell as we can, I think. Yeah, I think we've covered pretty much all of it. I was, I was going to add on that looking at single game XG, so just over one game, can sometimes be very misleading in terms of how a team's performing in a whole season because it is such a small sample size. Whereas if you look at, say, do a ro- take a rolling average of, say, five or seven games and you can kind of see some trends coming in there and you can do that for XGA or concede conceded shots or how you you know shots against and you can see where teams have started to do well and teams have started to do badly i think at the start of the last season when our rolling average of expected goals for so how many chances we're creating was increasing on a 
really, really good rate under Cowley and in the opposite for uh, expected goals conceded where, you know, the shots conceded and the chances conceded are becoming really low. And, you know, September, we all thought, we're going up. We're winning the league here. And I can't remember what switch specifically, but a turning point either moving to a five at the back, post the international window, and that, or it could, you know, again, it could just be good luck. And the team's working out how to play well against us. And that totally switched. And that led to the demise of our performances. And, you know, eventually the Cowleys being sacked. But yeah, single game XG is kind of a standalone takeaway. Doesn't tell you too much within the context of a season. You you know, you want a good handful of games at least to be able to look at this. And another thing as well, you you know, if you're looking at a striker's overall performance over a season where they could have just had a really lucky season, there could be an outlier there. Goals scored, you know, goals per ninety, because putting things per ninety, as we've explained before on this podcast, is a much fairer barometer of that. But goals per ninety is just a, as valuable as a statistic, I believe, because you can see that people are actually scoring goals, whereas are oh, they've had a lucky season overperforming compared to every other season where they've under underperformed. So you do need to contextualise this stuff, but I think we've covered it all pretty well. Yeah, there's just a couple more things I'll mention beforehand. So as Jack just messaged me across, Pompey's XG per 90 so far is their average is like 0.13 per shot. And that basically is a rough indicator of every 10 shots the team has, they should score at least once. Obviously, they have, the players have to actually execute it on the pitch. But again, a rough measure to indicate a team's performance going forward. And I think one thing that's annoyed people, and I do understand this about XG, is when you see lots of stuff on Twitter putting clubs in tables purely by expected goals for and expected goals against, and then giving them free points because their expected goals was higher, and then saying, oh, because the XG, Pompey should be, Pompey should finish second instead of 11th or something along those lines. And I understand why that annoys people. I think it's just, it should be used as just a measure of quality of chances rather than just putting teams and saying, oh God, the XG was higher, so they should have done better. They should be there because there are so many other factors in football that you, you can't just boil it down to that. Yeah, definitely. I was going to jump in on that as well. In terms of League One, in terms of XG per shot, we are currently second in the league and defensively we are 12th, which is you know surprising because we've kept some clean sheets and stuff. But that, that will lead on to a point where we'll probably discuss it later, but shows you the value of Norris in goal at the moment, how he's overperforming. It wouldn't come as a shock to me if that dips. He is a great keeper and he was great last year. Statistically, we looked at that. But, you know, these things do average out over time. They regress to the mean, to use a statistical term. And in terms of a table for kind of overall, that puts us fourth in kind of XG per shot and XGA per shot. So it's, you know, roughly correct as to where we are, but it's early days. Teams have played six games. It's a small sample size. And hopefully we can keep that XG per shot up for the whole season. Just a quick one, actually, because I might forget. Another facet of XG is a non-penalty XG, which is exactly what it says in the tin. You take away XG from penalties. I'm pretty sure I'm getting that right anyway, because X, an XG for penalties, I want to say 0.76. Yeah. Yeah, and that can make your numbers look better than they are. So that's another thing to bear in mind. In the so if a if a team's got a really high XG, they might have had a couple of penalties. That's just a small thing to bear in mind. But I think it's worth mentioning. No, absolutely, because you always back the player taking the penalty to score. But I think statistically, it's, I think zero point seven six is the measure of 
for example, every four penalties are taken, one is saved or one is missed as a rough indicator. And a couple of things, uh, Pompey's overall XG, I'm not sure Joff likes overall XG, but I'm doing it anyway for these six games. 10.97 according to Scout, and they've scored nine goals, so they're about roughly where they are. Expected goals against, which is the same measure, but flipped around. So effectively, the XG that Pompey have conceded and the actual goals that they've conceded. Again, the rough measure, but it's used to analyse defensive performance. So it's literally the same thing, but the other way around. Pompey's expected goals against is 7.47, according to Scout, with two goals conceded. And you can take that even further by looking at a metric called prevented goals, which I've talked about on the main podcast before. And that is Will Norris's prevented goals of 3.28. So basically all that does is it takes all the shots that Norris has saved and it takes the XG of those shots and then compares it to the, you know, the, the quality of chances that the keepers faced and then compared to the amount of goals conceded. Will Norris's was 3.28, which is the third highest in League One currently in those six games. So Pompey, just from that measure, look okay. But obviously, we're going to go into a bit of a deeper dive because in a few games, Pompey have definitely struggled creatively and to break down teams. Just to jump in on that Will Norris stat, that the goalkeeping kind of expect well goals prevented takes into account a different statistic called expected goal on target, where it measures the shots that are on target and it uh, calculates. It's a separate algorithm where if a shot, if a player's on a one-on-one and they don't hit it very hard, and it's just rolling down the middle. Nine times out of ten, the keeper's saving it. Whereas if they blast it top corner, you know, the keeper's saving it one time in ten. So that's that's how that statistic is calculated. I think it's important to say that. And that as well can be used to calculate how good a player's finishing as well. So you can say, you know, Harry Kane, say, on one-on-ones, will always place his shots really far into the corner with good power. So they're they're hard to save. Whereas, say, if I'm playing up front, which I don't, and I'm on a one-on-one, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to chip the keeper and it's straight into their arms. So, you know, from that, you can deduce that Harry Kane is a far superior to finisher than I am. And I think most people would say that's fair, but just wanted to get that one in there. No, cool. And I think we've gone through it enough and I hope we've explained it properly. But from creative chances, we're going to go to Pompey's actual ability going forward or lack thereof in some cases. We thought about why Pompey has struggled going forward, or I think in this case, looking at the advanced numbers, if they're struggling going forward, because that's been a narrative that has been on Twitter for a while and elsewhere in the in the uh, press as well, especially after the Cheltenham 0-0 and the one-all draw against Peterborough in the League Cup, where Pompey again couldn't break down 10 men for large parts of the game. They then went on to win 3-1 in the league and look very good doing it, so that's on the opposite prime. Jack, I'll just ask you first then, in your opinion, are Pompey struggling going forward? And if if so, why? I don't think there's any other answer than yes. I think, well, I mean, I could try and be really political and go, not really, but uh, no, we are, obviously we're recording just after the Peterborough game in which we, we were really good going forward, but, you know, across the across the whole, no. And I think there's a couple of things and I'll, I'll touch on a few points and then you guys kind of go into more detail, but I think first is fitness of the wingers in that Scully and White and Lane, they maybe didn't have the ideal pre-season or they're coming off the back of campaigns where they had injuries, for example. Another one would be, for me, Anthony Scully is a fantastic footballer. He hasn't shown it yet. I'll, I'll, I'll put my hands up and say he hasn't shown it yet. But I think the issue of Scully is that he's receiving the ball in the wrong positions. And because he doesn't really have that touch of, touch of, uh, of pace and that analysis in 1v1 situations, he receives really wide. 
then he can't get into the, the areas in which he'd want to shoot or pass the ball. So then, you know, he can't really affect the game. And I don't think the fullback pairings help with that either. So when you play Ogilvy at left back, and Ogilvy is a really solid fullback, he's good at what he's good at and he's not great at what he's not great at. You kind of, when Ogilvy plays a left back, so you need a left winger who can go 1v1 or serve his uh, underlapping runs. As Ogilvy isn't the best going forward. So either he doesn't go forward or you're kind of in weak 2v1 situations and, you know, there's not much danger there. So, which is why I was happy seeing Kamara at left wing against Peterborough because although he might not have the confidence yet to go 1v1, he has the ability. It's just like getting him up to speed and getting him confident. And finally, I think at times we provide the wrong type of service to the box. So you'll see Cobby Bishop go wide a lot of the time and you'll only have one player in the box and then we're crossing it in deep to the far post, which makes no sense when personally I'd rather we you know look for a cutback or, or a stand-up. And then when we do load the box, we're a bit slow getting it in there. So... It's a mixture of those four things. I do apologise if I've stolen your points. But yeah, no, we are struggling going forward. And hopefully that improves over the next couple of months. John, I was going to say, is it just the wide areas? Is that the main place where Pompey are struggling going forward? Or could it be boiled down to just players not executing their chances properly? I'd say it's slightly that. As you said earlier, with the expected goals being higher than the amount of goals that we have scored. But I think as well that when we... When we've played this season, there's been quite a lot of chopping and changing in lineups. And, well, you can say centre-forward roles locked down by Colby Bishop. Gavin White's basically got got the right-wing role locked down, mostly. But in terms of that kind of number 10 position in this 4-2-3-1 we've got going, and the left-winger, it's been a lot of change. And for me, that you know you want consistency with that to get those kind of patterns of play in where you have your left back coming up, underlapping, your your wing is staying wide, your tens pushing on through, and you've got that you get those kind of patterns of play, you know, really locked in. Whereas, you know, you can work on that on the training pitch, but if you've got, you know, an inconsistent team, especially kind of down one side where we've had who is it? We've had Sparks, we've had Scully, we've had Camera, potentially even Sadie play out wide on the left. We've got no consistency there. And that that is huge, and I, I'm a big advocate of kind of consistency in terms of keeping player combinations together, centre-backs together, and then full-backs and wiggins together as well. They're, they're the things that, if you've got consistency there, that's going to help you a lot in terms, of, in terms of winning football games throughout the course of a season. So that is, I think, an issue. And I think once we get a settled team, then I think we'll see that improve. And yeah, the first goal that came at the weekend was down the right-hand side. Obviously, Swanson's new into the side for this weekend, but there was a, some really nice positional rotations where we ended up with Pack, one of the two sitting midfielders, out wide, crossing the ball in for Bishop. And that was because, you know, Swanson is a very, very intelligent reader of the game and kind of intelligent runs and movement comes naturally to him. And we saw that with White, Morel. Bishop, I think, was involved in the build-up of that as well. All kind of moving around to create space in the box and then Bishop, between two defenders, gets a header away and it's great. And then he screams in the face of the defender, which is funny. But yeah, consistency in the side for me, I think, will go a long way. And of course, you have injuries, you have times where players need rests, and that's when you rely on depth. But, you know, these things should be worked on in the training ground. And I think once we've got our kind of starting eleven locked in and those kind of patterns of play locked in, then players can understand I think also not necessarily in the Peterborough game but it's felt like there's a, been a bit of a lack of central penetration you've got, you've got Colby holding the line 
And then, you know, luckily against Peterborough, we had Sadie, who's, you know, making quite a few probing runs into the half space. Uh, Morel did it as well, sort of. But in other games, it just feels a bit flat and you're not, especially against back fives when we're not even trying to match them up. We're just, we're, they've got, they double up on our players constantly and then you, you don't give them much to think about and then you just end up recirculating possession. And look, I'm fine with us having the, the lion's share of the ball as long as it's per- purposeful. And I guess you could argue if we have the ball and the opposition don't, they can't score. But I feel like I want to see more probing runs from from deep into half spaces just to just to give the defenders a bit more to think about, even if it's just sacrificial. That helps and that creates space. So let's have a look a little bit deeper then, because on the wings, it's been mainly Anthony Scully and Gavin White, the high-profile wingers who expected to start, who have come under the most flack. Both of them have got zero goals and zero assists in the league, but some of their advanced numbers look reasonable. Let's go with... Expected goals and expected assists first, and then we'll have a look at some others afterwards. So, Anthony Scarlett's expected assists is 0.18 per 90, or 0.61 in total. And the per 90 stat is above average. So, above halfway for, I looked at it just by looking at wingers who have played at least 90 minutes so far in the league. So, Anthony Scarlett is just above average. Not Nothing to write home about, and I think we could sense that from his performances as well. But not awful by any manner of means. And his expected goals is 0.12 per 90 or 0.39 in total, which makes sense because we don't, I don't think he's come close to actually having some proper chances either. Gavin White is a little bit different. Gavin White is averaging 0.22 expected assists per 90, which is in the top third for wingers under those parameters I mentioned. And he's got 1.1 for expected assists in total, which roughly means he should have set up a goal by now in those six games. And then looking at... His actual scoring chances, he's on 0.14 expected goals per 90 with 0.73 XG in total. One thing I have noticed with Gavin White, though, which is a bit, and this is just from the eye test, I'll look at my actual data in a minute. He seems to be hesitant to be direct on that right wing. And what do I mean by that? He's not going to burst and skin a fullback. I can't remember him doing that an awful lot. I can't imagine like whipping a cross in with a lot of ferocity, for example. He does cut back to supporting players a fair bit. And that helped with actually the Peterborough goal because he passed with the passing sequences with Swanson and Burrell on that side before the ball eventually got to pack. So it can be useful, but he's doing that a lot. Are are those eye test things an issue or is it just something we're biased because he hasn't scored a goal or set up a goal in the league yet? Should we just look at the underlying numbers? I think the eye test can paint you a pretty solid picture of not kind of what type of player they are, but potentially how Messinio is instructing them to play. He could have instructed Gavin White not to go and beat the man, but try and build up possession around the right-hand side and use maybe a run mid- from midfield or the fullback to um, get to the byline and cross it in or you know go for a cutback or whatever. But the underlying numbers, the expected assists stuff is interesting. I think I'm... So I've looked on FOTMOB and... Of all the players in League One, uh, Anthony Scully's expected assists is actually seventh in the league. So they've got it down as 0.34. Now, that is a huge discrepancy, and it should be said that data providers for this stuff kind of vary massively. And, you know, stuff should be taken with a pinch of salt. You know, people's XG algorithms are wildly different. Uh, Stats bombs will be massively different to Opta's, and then that will be different to my budget one 
and that'll be different to the one on my scout. But the you know kind of the principle stays the same that these players are doing they're doing okay, but we we could be doing better. And I think yeah, the hesitance to beat a man is something that I think yeah I think is an issue. Whether it's again a coaching instruction or just the type of player he is, because we we discussed on here I think in the first podcast that if those wingers kind of stay wide and then go to beat a man in a one-on-one duel, they've got excellent opportunities to cut back to centre midfielders, Colby Bishop, whoever, you know, the opposite winger arriving late into the box, the fullback going to the edge of the area. That's not happening, but that's how, that's something that I can see us solving with either a change of selection or change, you know, tactical instructions and being very profitable from in the future. Just touched on that actually. And, um, uh, what I was alluding to earlier with Anthony Scully picking the ball up in the wrong positions. So Anthony Scully is in the bottom 13th percentile for accelerations per 90 and the bottom 20th percentile for progressive runs per 90. And this is against League One wingers. Um, I didn't do any minute parameters, but they're all of a, a solid amount. He's also below average in successful dribbles and slightly above average in dribbles per 90. So when he picks the ball up in the wide positions, that's fine. I've not got the issue with that. But when he does pick it up, he can't be as effective in getting it into the areas in which he wants to influence. And those zones of influence for Anthony Scully, it's sort of the left half space just outside the box. I mean, I think on the main show, you chatted to someone from the Stacey West and weren't quite sure what position Scully plays best in. And which is why I prefer kind of zones of influence in, in way where Scully wants to influence the game. And he can't quite get it into those areas. And then he doesn't also receive those areas, which is an issue. And for, for White, it's similar. So accelerations and progressive runs per 90. Average in terms of percentiles, but below average successful dribble percentage, just below average in dribbles per 90. So, you know, there's not loads of ball progression going on there. But that could also be a tactical issue. Uh, not tactical issue, a tactical nuance in that White creates a lot of space for people. He's very good defensively, which we kind of knew when we signed him. And his crossing, high volume, above average accuracy, so maybe it's not all bad. The underlying numbers are fine, but there are some some issues, especially with Scully in terms of where he's picking up the ball and how it can influence. Yeah, a lot needs to be put on crossing to a certain degree because obviously when you've got a striker like Colby Bishop who can wrestle a centre-half and make arguably a low XG chance out of nothing by getting his head on the ball or getting ahead to the centre-half, you need wingers who are good at crossing. It's as simple as that. And not not in a way under Kenny Jacket like ages ago, where they would just cross it from literally everywhere that was a past the halfway line. They need to get into that clear space where they've passed a fullback or a through ball, takes out a fullback from the game, then it's a clear clear cross to the striker. In terms of accuracy, Scully's crossing, I had it with 45.5, according to why Scott was roughly like the top third for wingers. He was doing quite well. But then again, he doesn't always pick the right ball either, which is a bit of a shame. Gavin White's was low. It was like above average, not nothing to write home about. But I think it does show some issues there. Abu Kamara, a lot of people are raving about him now since he got his goal and assist in the Peaceful game last time. And he's looked relatively good anyway. He was 10th for expected assists per 90 under the parameters I said earlier at 0.25 with 0.88 in total. And he had 0.34 expected goals per 90 and 1.17 XG in total. So he should have scored by now, and he did in that last game, which is good. He's showing more of an attacking threat, but also for crossing accuracy, he's the fourth highest in League One. Now, I must say, 
he averages a lot less crosses than White and Scully do. He averages 1.72 according to White Scout compared to Scully's 3.27 and White's 3.96. Now, obviously, if you're putting more crosses into the box, less likely that someone gets on the end of it. But it seems like Kamara's much calmer in that space. He picks his moments to put a ball into the box rather than just throwing the ball into the box repeatedly. Is that something to look out for? Is it a case of Kamara being braver and getting into clearer positions for this crossing? Or is it just a case of him being more patient? What do you think? Potentially. I think the point as well is that if our wingers are instructed to stay out wide and create space for others, do we want wingers who are playing on their opposite side of the natural foot? And Kamara is left-footed and playing out on the left. He's got I rate his ball carrying. You know, he can come inside. I think he needs to be more confident with it, but he's got that ability. I think, Jack, you said that earlier, and I I think it's a great point that if you've got someone out wide who can, and I, I think the same for Jack Sparks as well, who can make a dart with the ball down the left and whip one in or just play the ball back into the half space when, when, when they're out wide. I think that with kind of eights or attacking midfielders or you know, a fullback underlapping, occupying that half space, I think that could be really valuable for us. Because I know we said prior to the season that it we're looking like we're going to start with a 4-3-3 with inverted wingers, maybe with Paddy Lane on the right and Scully cutting in. And it's been more of a 4-2-3-1 with, yeah, White, who's right-footed on the right, and Scully, who's right-footed on the left, cutting in. And that imbalance is, it's fine if you're planning for it, but I don't think it's worked out massively but with Kamara on the left you kind of have that opportunity for the eights and and your fullbacks and you know even Bishop rotating inside and you you can have Sadie bombing on forward into the box amazing you you can kind of hold those positions which I really like and I know it's kind of a bit traditional to have wingers who play on the correct side but it's a valid thing and you can always change it up you know you could have Paddy Lane and Scully or Yengi on the on the left when he's fit, so we we do have options. But I think having having wingers on their stronger foot on that side could be a way that we can kind of increase the productivity of our attackers. I was going to say, Jack, Jack since you wanted to come in, do you think it's a major issue of Pompey's again problems with having inside wingers or in side forwards in the wide areas rather than people being on their preferred foot? No, um, I speak about this a lot, but I'm a big fan of, of goal kicks and build up and I think when we I think the first show we, we likened our possible tactical setup this year to, to Klopp's Liverpool and I've, I've flipped on that quite a lot actually and I think that's fine I think it's there's no shame in getting stuff wrong um, and it's way more like uh, <laughs> it's way more like Deserby's Brighton but the issue is oh, don't, oh, don't do this again compare wait, it to a Prem wait Fred <laughs> wait wait our setup from goal kicks requires our wingers to be very good in uh, artificial transitions and an artificial transition is essentially a moment in the game that recreates the conditions of a counter-attack the issue is when you play Scully and White neither of them so far at least have had amazing ball progression or, or dribbling rates and they're not the most direct whereas if you play you know Kamara and Lane for example it's way more of a threat in behind so there's not much there's not much stretching of the opposition's back line but I don't think I think footedness is slightly overstated I think it gets spoken about more than it should I think it can be an issue in terms of smaller individual dynamic or not individual um, 
subunit dynamics. But yeah, it just it depends on the opposition on the setup, and that's a really wishy-washy answer. But it's good that we have different options for for different games. I do think it does come up in certain moments, which is a key reason why people are avoid to get out. For example, in the um in the Exeter game where one on nil, that threaded pass from Robertson, I think it was to Scully, and quite simply, if he was on his left foot, his preferred foot, he probably would have slotted it past the keeper for one nil at a time. But because he was on his wrong foot. Tried to control it with his right foot and first time shot, it just didn't didn't work. Bobbled out for a, a goal kick, and those are the chances you do miss when you've got inside wingers on. And one of the players who like jumped in almost out of his preferred position is Jack Sparks, being left footed on the left wing. He's got some very some very good underlying numbers on him. I do like his dribble rate, his two point six three dribbles per ninety with eighty three point three percent accuracy according to Weisscott. That's incredibly high, so he's able to carry the ball incredibly well. And with that skill, he can probably beat a man. And when he's come on, he got an assist in the, in the cup as well. So he seems like the other direct option because after Scully's injury, you would expect him potentially to come back in. But I think Kamara's basically got that position on hold now, especially since he was on the score sheet against Peterborough. It's a tough one, isn't it? We have a lot of options, but it just seems like in this 4-2-3-1 anyway, Jov, it seems like wingers on their preferred feet are doing a lot better rather than the inside players. Yeah, and I I agree with Jack's point as well that it's very kind of dependent on how the other team are shaping up and the kind of subunit you've got. If you're if the midfielder, central midfielder on that side, and your fullback on that side are all the same foot, there will be an imbalance there. However, I in terms of kind of player selection, I've really really liked Jack Sparks when he's played. Um, I was looking at some of the some of the numbers, and he is kind of flipping from in possession to out of possession, he is second in the league for possession one in the final third with an average of three per 90. Well, and you can say, great, he is more naturally a left back, so therefore he's a better tackler. But I think from what I've seen anyway, and you know, it's one of those things that you can't quantify, that his intelligence of kind of when to press and when to kind of go in and make those tackles is is really good. I Yeah, I'm a big fan and I'd, I you know against a stronger side who maybe would have more of the ball I'd probably I'd probably start Sparks at at left midfield because he's that kind of more more pressing he can get a chance and you know have a have a crack at starting a counter attack from his pressing and in terms of expected assists as well he's looked you know he's looked really good uh, fifth according to Fot Mob I don't know what you guys have jo- but... joint top according to Weisscout with. 0.39 expected assists per 90. Yeah, so he's got 0.35 on here, but again... Roughly the same, that, isn't it, anyway? So. Yeah, that will balance out over the course of a season. And, you know, it's, to be said, it's very early days, and small sample sizes and that, but I really like the fact that we've got options. And Paddy Lane coming back as well, all the better for it. And I think, Messini, I think, Jack, you tweeted about this, is, is how he reacts to in-game situations and how he can, you know, change the game with intelligent subs... Plymouth were incredible at that last season and that that essentially won them the league and yeah if Messina can keep that up can read the game know what's needed from our players and our players can stay fit then there's no reason to say why we can't do that but again it's very early days but the options the options we have I do like and hopefully they can all stay fit looking at Pompey going forward in certain games the key was when Bishop would get isolated, wouldn't have many chances. And not all of that is down to the wingers. A lot of that is down to the midfield as well. 
Obviously, the last game probably did very well with the Pack and Morel partnership. That double pivot looked quite good. And we talked before about wanting midfielders who can pass horizontally and vertically. I think that balance was there until Morel was stupid and got a second booking. But also that third midfielder who's supposed to be more advanced. It's been a lot of players. There's been a lot of change in the cup games and in the league games as well. I've liked Christian Sadie in that position. Very industrial. Gets the ball in dangerous areas and passes it out. Very good in the press as well. But then we also have Alex Robertson, who's arguably a more creative version, a more technical version. Then you've even got Terry Devlin behind him, who's a little bit similar. And then we've got Tino Andurin, who we're going to go over a little bit later on. Jack, that position in the midfield. Well, first of all, do you think the midfield, centre midfield is getting enough? Is that limiting Pompey's creativity? And then in that advanced role specifically, what does the player in that position need to do to create chances? Oh, that's a really difficult question. I think if you asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have had a very different answer. And now the transfer window's passed. We've had, you know, Tina's come in, Stevenson's come in, all these midfielders have come in. I think now we really have the tools to, to have different structures and, and uh, different dynamics. And I, I think you really saw that in the, in the Peterborough game. Whereas a couple of weeks ago, a pack and morale partnership would be seen as not negative as such, but maybe not as, as good as it, as it was uh, yesterday. Yeah. People were saying they were um, too similar. That was a big thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think the red card is is annoying, but I, I don't think that takes away too much from how good Morales' performance was. <laughs> it wasn't even in maybe the top five performances of Pompey's. I think we were really good. But um, I think in that number 10, and ugh, I'm going to give a really on-the-fence answer, it depends who you're playing. Like, for example, Peterborough's back line yesterday, it was absolutely there to be bullied. You had Bishop pinning Ronnie Edwards. You had Kamara going 1v1 with the fullback. Okay, there wasn't as much 1v1 on the on their left back, but we made up for that because we doubled up, we tripled up, and we even quadrupled up at times on that side of the pitch. And then you had Sadie, who was bullying the double pivot, bullying, was it Romani Critchlow, who played at left centre-back or whatever. And But whereas, you know, other games, you against a low block, for example... You'd need a Tino Andrin or or an, or an Alex Robertson who's got more of a a creative a creative side to him and a bit of a deft touch. So it depends who you're playing, and I'd be more concerned if we only had the personnel to play into one type of team. But with all the acquisitions and and it seems the the improvement in our attacking patterns and our attacking structure, we've got a lot of options. You think the slight improvement in that game is? could be just down to the players getting used to each other again. Because obviously there's been a lot of chop and change. There's a big pre-season of all the new players coming in. Pompey's still unbeaten in the league, 17 games in a row. But the problem was in the previous games, for the Peterborough one, it was the same issues, wasn't it? Especially against teams with down to 10 men, where they looked slow sometimes in the transition in the final third. There was no clear key-cut chances. If you looked at the expected goals, it was just accumulative shots that were either blocked or straight to the keeper. Joff, do you see Massinho's tactics leading to the team being more creative eventually? Do you think it's just yeah, been, you know, the? Uh, do you think it's just down to the players as to why we struggle creatively, or is it the tactics? Which is it? Yeah, as I've mentioned earlier, kind of rotating around, finding the right combinations, also being forced into player changes, hasn't helped massively. But also the fact that we did a lot of our preseason in a 4-3-3 and only towards the end of that went to a 4-2-3-1. Now, kind of the principles of Massino's style of play 
shouldn't change too much. However, what I've kind of noticed kind of early doors is that we're almost playing a weird hybrid between those two and that we're doing, we've got Pack sat there. Morel is kind of playing as an eight and here's a term that will be mocked forever, but almost like a false eight. And then you've got the 10 joining the front line and dropping in. And it kind of seems like we're, we've got one formation in our head, but we're playing another and we don't know how to say in build up, go for a, a two, three, five or a, Two four four. We're kind of a bit confused between that, and I think what will really help us is the international break that we've got that game off that we can work on those things. And I think hopefully that will bear some fruit. And in terms of kind of Morel being out for the next game, do we switch back to a four three three and put Robertson there as an eight along with Sadie as well? And yeah, I don't know how I don't know how we'll kind of shape up next game and how Morel Morel suspension will impact us, but. You know, I think between those two formations, I think if we're going to stick with four two three one, things will improve. Okay, there was one thing that points out to me, which is the start of the listener question segment. Thank you so much for sending those in. And it's Basinio's Moose's question about the midfield and the creativity. And I'm going to put this to you guys and I'll answer it as well. Most people say Pack and Morel have to start when available. Sadie's performances means he should start at the moment, but most feel Andrew and Robertson will bring creativity that which we've lacked. Kamara's performances have also improved each game. What is your midfield five and how would you set it up? I think in this case, probably I think the 4-2-3-1 makes sense because you have the advanced midfielder a bit further forward to support the wingers and the striker. I do like Marlon Pack. I know a lot of people don't. I know a lot of people have pointed out the fact that, you know, as they're saying that, oh, just just because he got the assist on the Peter again doesn't mean he has a lot of problems. But I do think creatively in individual moments, he's very good. And he's got that little something that not a lot of the midfielders have in terms of set-piece delivery, in terms of a killer cross, for example. And the anchors the play down. And he's the sort of player who could do that. So you need a more defensive player in there. I probably would put Morel next to him if he wasn't suspended. I would like to see, well, uh, you would expect someone like a Ben Stevenson to come in or a Terry Devlin alongside Pack next game because of the suspension. But normally, all suspensions permitting, but I still think Pacamorel is the best pairing, especially since Lowry's injured. I would still go for Alex Robertson as the 10, because creatively so far, he's looked very, very good. And his advanced numbers show it as well. With the killer passing, his shooting can be a bit off, but he seems to pick the right pass as well. So those are the three I'd have in the middle. And then the wingers, Abu Kamara's won me over, so I'll put him on the left. And I would like to see more Paddy Lane, I think. I know it creates that imbalance of having the one inside forward and the traditional winger. But his setup for Sadie's goal in the League Cup, I really liked. And it's the sort of chance that I think Poppy can create really well. It also helps that you've got a more adventurous fullback on that side as well. You've got a Swanson or a Rafferty to bob all the way past on the overlap. So that's my personal opinion. Uh, Jack, which is yours? Your midfield five behind Bishop. I think mine would be pretty similar. I won't go fully the same because uh, that, that's boring and no one wants that. So I'd go before 4-2-3-1. I'd have Pack and Robertson as a double pivot because watching, uh, it's when I did my research for Alex Robertson when he was signing, I was just so struck by his deep conduction and tempo dictation uh, from kind of the, the the double six area. So I think that can be really helpful. I'll go with Christian Sadie as a 10 because... Not only does he work incredibly hard on and off the ball, 
but it can you can play a a four one four one mid block, a four four two mid block. That's it actually. But they're the main ones. For the wingers, I'd go Abukamara on the left and Paddy Lane on the right. And because a structure we saw in I think mainly the first half of the Peterborough game was a three two five with Norris as the assumed goalkeeper, obviously, a back three of Ogilvy on the left, Shocknessy in the middle. Paul is quite an advanced right centre back, a double pivot of Pack and Morel. And then the front five in the Peterborough game was from left to right, Abu Kamara, Christian Sadie, Colby Bishop, Gavin White, uh, Zach Swanson. So if you just sub in uh, Robertson for Morel and Lane for White, I think that really suits how we want to play. And it just makes things a bit more fluid in terms of rotations and, and subunit dynamics. Go off your five midfielders. I'm going to do that thing and say it's very situationally dependent. I was Pack is there as either the single pivot or the double fit pivot. But I'm if we're playing against a back five, I'd be keen on playing a four-three-three with perhaps Sadie and Andrin as eights. Really aggressive. Sadie and Robertson as well, because at back five you'll need that kind of yeah tempo dictation there as well. Wingers one v one. The wingers again being Paddy Lane and Abu Kamara against a side where you are, you know they're going to have a decent chunk of the ball as well, and it's a back four again one v one. Sadie is Sadie Andrin would be two guys to have in that ten position, you know, defending a four four two. But yeah, Joe Morell would be there for two weekends time. Robertson for me replaces Morel, and yeah, I had a kind of I'm not going to say wild, but I think inverting Zach Swanson if he's if he's playing at right back. I know Jack, you're a big fan of that, but I can see that working, so we can build on a three-two-five. You have Robertson pushing on, so you've got Pack, uh, Pack, and Swanson as that kind of double pivot, and then on the front line you've got Kamara, Robertson, Sadie, Bish, and whoever's playing at right midfield. A few varied answers there, but. We're playing against different teams, so I think that's fair. I'll let you get away if you're fence-sitting, because at least you explained the different examples, so people will know in different scenarios. Looking at the other listener questions, Dean Preston messaged in and said, felt the atmosphere massively turned before just before the first goal against Peterborough. You could sense the unrest, but then we had a good five-minute spell before the equaliser. Sadie is key in the system as he links the midfield with Bishop. For Robertson and Tino to get in, it will need to be as inverted wingers, in his opinion, which is a bit different. What do you think of that little thing at the back then, those midfielders playing inverted wingers? And do you think Sadie's been integral with linking the midfield that much? Just, I think Joff was quite eager to jump in there. So I'll just say something very quickly. I think it was uh, Xavi's Barcelona, maybe even just a year ago or so. What they do is they'd start um, Pedri or Gavi off of the left and they would, it's going to sound awful, they'd come inside to form a box midfield and and the left back would push really high. So one idea actually would be to have Andrew or Scully actually off the left in possession, coming inside, and then have I guess Sparks and um, suits, but or or Denver Hume, <laughs> no, Jack Sparks as the left back, really high and wide, holding the whip from the left. Uh, Joff, I'll let you I'll let you carry on from there. You've literally stolen what I was going to say. I we all watch a Tifo video. T- Tino Andrew. Well, I wasn't going to use the Barca example. I was going to compare Tino Andrew to currently at Spurs. James Madison is playing as an eight. And when he made his, I think it was his England debut, he played out wide left, but would always come inside when England had the ball and looked really dangerous. And I see Tino Andrew 
doing a similar similar role can play as an eight or as a ten, but also if you need to put them out wide and come inside in possession and have that fullback being Jack Sparks, and it's not just because he's from Exeter, and I spent part of my childhood there. He's also a very good player. Have Jack Sparks overlapping, I think that would work very well. Robertson, not too sure. I think I prefer him in the middle where he's got you can see the whole pitch and he's got he's got that kind of tempo dictation. We've said that a lot, but that is how you describe him as a player. I really like it when he has the ball and can just dictate play. You can slow things down, he can speed things up. He's got a really nice turn. I wouldn't play him out wide. I think he'd be wasted there. Probably the other questions have been about the fans' reaction so far. So Finney John messaged in and said, Vecino is doing a good job, just needs to figure out how to break down teams who just park the bus. Andrew will help with that, hopefully, but a great result against Peterborough, which he definitely needed. And Pompey's W also messaged saying, do you think the negativity from our fan base has been undeserved? After the League Cup game, it felt like fans were already calling for the managers and players' heads. But then he also follow up, is Bishop the best striker since 2012? Now he said 2012 because obviously he remembers the brilliant striker of Marto Futax. He also remembered Eric Husklep as well. But yes, Bishop as a striker, definitely the best striker we've had since 2012 by Country Mile, to be honest. I'll let Arvid jump in here. Do you think the negativity so far has been deserved? I think personally, in some games, I understand where the frustration is coming from because it's the same issues that have been with the club for ages now. And we haven't played against arguably some of the better sides that other teams have played against. I think Peterborough looked the most accomplished side we played against and they definitely didn't want to park the bus either, which probably helped, to be honest with you. So what do you think of the fan reaction then? Justified in certain scenarios or not? Yeah, because even, even Actually, one thing to point out, Duncan Ferguson brought that up in his post-match. He said that, oh, this Fratton Park car could be turned, so even the opposition managers are noticing. I, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fair to an extent, but also unfair. You know, we expect that Portsmouth should be, you know, top six at least say oh we're going for promotion players are signing and saying i signed for portsmouth because we want to get promoted and that's what i mean as a fan as a club you know we don't deserve to be in league one historically we're not a league one club we also you know we've we've been in this league for far too long so yeah we we expect that as fans and i i get the point that you know we're not winning every game but we also haven't lost and we're the only unbeaten team in league one and we've kept some really solid clean sheets. And at the end of the day, it's a I think that solid defensive foundation we've got looks yeah, looks like it, it will last the season. I think a point point being watch Tuesday's game and then watch a game where we've kept a clean sheet. And you see on Tuesday's game you've got Raggett and Towler. And I think the drop off from Shocknessy and Paul to Raggett and Towler is massive. And I think we look so much more solid with those two guys at the back. And, you know, the attacking combinations will come through, you know, and I've said it before, but the kind of change in system and the change in kind of personnel out on the left hasn't helped us. But hopefully, international window coming through, we can uh, work on some things on the training pitch and get those player combinations going. Yeah, what do you think of the criticism of the team so far? I think there needs to be a distinction between frustration and negativity. Because I don't think booing... I know there was a video of Joe Rafferty, I believe, against Cheltenham, hearing the boos from at full time, and he just kind of shrugged and looked quite dejected. I think frustration is absolutely warranted. I think there's been a lot of moments this season where 
I've been really frustrated. I've never booed this season. <laughs> Not this season, anyway. All in good time, though. I think the boos are unwarranted, to be honest. I don't think... I think it's pretty rare that a team can go unbeaten so far and, and you know, deserve boos, but... But yeah, no, I, I think frustration is warranted. Booing and negativity, maybe not. So on the PO Forecast Orchestra, we always go through deep dives with players. We did that over the summer. And now we're going to do it for the last player for the January window. We're going to look into Tino Andrian in detail, the 21-year-old who signed on loan from Chelsea, who whose relationship with John Harley played a big role in him coming. And I can tell already that he hates the scum. So it's a brilliant signing already uh, as he came out and said that Pompey's the only good team on the South Coast. So no matter what happens, he's good in my book for that alone. So he's a centre midfielder who he himself said he can play as an eight or a 10. So a deeper midfielder who could be a bit more adventurous or an out and out playmaking number 10. Six foot one inches tall. So he's got some good height on him. He's played a fair bit of senior football. He played seven league games for Locomotive Moscow in the Russian Premier League before going on two loan spells to Huddersfield, which was a major loan beforehand. And he's played 15 games for Huddersfield across two seasons. Last season, he netted three goals and zero assists and averaged 0.08 expected goals per 90 with 0.49 in total in 548 minutes of football. And if you look at his highlights... Two of those goals were in one game and they were brilliant. I think one of them was cutting onto his right foot outside the penalty area and bend it into the corner against West Bromwich Albion. And the second was him pressing Dara O'Shea, taking the ball off him, driving into the penalty area and smacking it near post. So he seems, anyway, I'll look into the advanced numbers in a minute, but either of you want to jump in this one. Do you think Andrin is the sort of midfielder that we've needed, that we didn't have? And how big of an impact is he going to have on the first team? Yeah, with, with um, Tino or, or Faustino, let's go with Tino, it's what you did to say. He, we don't have a, a player of his profile at the moment, obviously we signed him, so that's one. He's just so utterly fantastic in terms of that raw talent and ability. And Messino wasn't, you know, overstating it when he said he was upper championship, lower Premier League in terms of ability. He's as close to the complete package as you're going to get in terms of a footballer. However... He's had some really unfortunate injuries. And I won't call him injury prone because I don't, I've not seen that so far. But he's had injuries that just hold back his development so much and come at such awkward times just when he gets playing. Because as a footballer, in both the data, especially in his first season at Huddersfield, and on the eye and historically, which utterly fantastic. And with a lot of these young Premier League loanees, it's not exactly young, but these Premier League loanees, they're a bit diminutive and maybe aren't ready for the physicality side of things. Honestly, watch him in under-21s football and in men's football. He's deceptively tall because he is, I refuse to believe he's six foot one. His legs are massive. So he's just, he's just, he can just gallivant around the football pitch, putting in tackles and, and kicking things. He's, he's strong physically. Uh, I'll let Joff talk a bit more because I don't want to steal all of the... Uh, the Tino Andrin is it it's simping is what the kids call it, isn't it? No more simping. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, hopefully when he gets playing, we can see him at eye level and do the test. I'm bang on six foot, and so I can usually tell how tall people are just by looking at them. If I'm stood on the same, obviously, if I'm in the frat and end, I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, he's definitely six three, isn't he? But he is a big, strong boy. He Big meaty yeah. boy. Big meaty boy. However you want to put it. You see players who at Premier League 2 level 
physically dominate and that's because they are they have developed quicker and they reach men's football and all of a sudden it's a huge jump and you know a lot of what makes them look really good at the Premier League 2 level has gone because they're playing against you know blokes who are a similar size further down in their development and more aggressive I don't think that Andrew's going to have that issue I think he will be fine and that's been proven already it's not like he's you know fresh out of Premier PL2 like Kamara like Dane Scarlett he's ready one thing I like about him is Fred you touched on it is his finishing I think he can be that goal scoring midfielder I was reading up on him I think Jody Morris who was assistant under Frat I was about to say Fat Frank under under Frank Lampard at Chelsea um, he described him as one of the best finishers at the club, which is high praise. Positionally as well, centre midfield, in a s- similar interview, uh, I think Corbran, who was the Huddersfield boss at the time, said in a 3-4-2-1, which is what they're playing and what Chelsea were playing, he'd be one of the inside forwards, kind of like a kind of like a 10 attacking midfielder, but can play off wide depending on what your wing-backs are up to, depending on the kind of strike you have. But I can you know, see him doing a very very good job as an advanced eight I think that season two years ago where Gundogan was popping up edge of the box scoring massive asset in FPL his XG was low so I was not obviously not buying him on fantasy but he was scoring and I think Andrew can have a similar quality for us I really like this signing saw a bit of you know moaning on social saying people people saying oh oh no you know why is he why is he picked us you know He's a, we weren't his first choice. And, you know, Chelsea ran out of their international loan spots, but he's picked us over other clubs in the UK. So obviously he's seen something there and that relationship with John Harley, you know, it's definitely come, come good there. And once he's fit, and I really hope he stays fit, I can see him being a massive asset for us. And hopefully we'll keep him past January. Hopefully he doesn't become another Ben Thompson. And if he does... I fully back Rich Hughes to have lined up someone else just to come in and slot in. Yeah, that's one thing to point out, actually, with his loan deal. He can be recalled six months, but it is still for the full season. And I think Chelsea got something in there where they can also recall him in different scenarios as well due to injuries. So I think, to be honest, that is a concern. But with these sorts of midfielders, you're getting them from Premier League sides. I mean, what do you expect? That is the market for those sorts of players. So I don't think the club could have done anything about that, really. Just two things, really. Um, the first on a more emotional standpoint and the second on more of a technical standpoint. It's very, very easy to forget that we weren't Colby Bishop's first choice. We weren't Marlon Pack's first choice. They're lauded as heroes and icons and, and beloved. I don't really get why the treatment is insane for players like Tino. I think it's a bit harsh and a bit cynical. But from a technical standpoint, I think we've, t- we've touched on his goal scoring and his, his ball striking and all those things but he's also just an incredibly creative footballer he's got an excellent passing range and not just you know slide rule passes line breaking passes but he's got he loves a little scooped pass scooped pass over a player and a lot of reverse passes as well which Alex Robertson can do to an extent but yeah Tino is just he's so creative he's so you know he's got great um, finishing ability good physically he is literally the complete pack, and he can play multiple positions. He's literally the complete package when it comes to an attacking midfielder. And the fact we've got him is, to be frank, 
insane. I'm shocked. <laughs> and we're, we should enjoy every minute he plays because honestly, what a player. Just spectacular. One stat that I've liked is just from looking at his numbers from last season, Huddersfield. I like the number of progressive runs he had for a centre midfielder. I think it was 2.14 per 90. And that was 12th in the league for progressive runs. I looked at players who had played at least, at least 500 minutes in the league because that's roughly what Andrew played. Now, obviously, that's not a largest sample size as I would have liked, but it's what we're working with. And he was 12th for those progressive runs for a centre midfielder. It was very similar to Tahif Chong, who's now playing for Luton. And there is a bit of a similarity there. He likes to get foiled a bit. He averaged 5.15 dribbles per 90 with 48% accuracy as well. Passes to the final third was really good with 4.93 per 90 with 63.3% accuracy, which again, I like because I think that's what Pompey have been missing. I do like Robertson and Sadie, but I do like a midfielder who can carry the ball and progress it forwards. That's something that I think Pompey is missing. And if you've got a midfielder like that who can bring defenders out of their shape, then it can solve the low block problem because you either just let him run closer to the penalty area and maybe pick out a pass or have a, shl- a shot which might get deflected in or might get deflected for a corner, or you go out to press him and then he plays a through ball to either Lane or White or Bishop, for example. Do you think that's the sort of midfielder we've been missing? And do you think he should play in the eight, so a bit deeper next to a pack or a Burrell, or do you think he should play as the 10? Just, just a quick one in terms of his ball progression, as you were saying, He's so vertical and so positive. And the thing about Tino is that through carry or through pass or through whatever, he's always looking for the shortest, quickest and most direct way to get to goal. That's, you know, that's what kind of struck me when I started watching him. And we do kind of miss that. And we said earlier about the lack of central penetration. If you can have Tino as a 10 or as an 8 or any number that suits you, he can offer that threat in terms of penetration and, and runs from deep, which, which I love personally. Yeah. To jump on that kind of finding space between the lines, I know they don't play in the same position, but Evan Ferguson's goal against Newcastle, the one where he received it from deep, drove centre-backs, didn't have a clue whether to go and you know, press him, try and force him into a tackle, and they just stood off him, and he smashed it in. Well, he didn't even smash it, he placed it in from 25 yards. Very similar to Harry Kane as well, but he's a player that finds those pockets of space. And as you say, Fred, the way he can drive forward of the ball and pick a pass or ping one from 25 yards, I am confident he will score in a non-serious point. Whatever number you want to give him. He hasn't been given a squad number. I'd love to give him number 13 because he's from Chelsea. Slightly reminds me of a Michael Balak, who wore number 13. And I think that would suit him. And if he gets number three, I will be livid. Don't say Michael Balak's name's Kevin Bridsborough. It will bring up very, very bad memories. 22. true. 22 is what he should wear. It looks good. And I know you're a squad number fiends, Joff, so basically any number that, that's got like a three in front of it, you, you just live it immediately. So. 28's available. That would be acceptable, but 13 would, would look good. It would no. sell shirts as well because it's lucky for many people. It's never lucky for me. It's my roulette number and it never comes in. I think the last question about Tino is when he's fit, should he start? It's a tough one, isn't it? Because Sadie's played incredibly well. And Josh said, like, against physical sides, I think you need a Sadie to link up the play an awful lot. You've also got a very technical Eric Robertson who can play both. So he can replace Morel in the next game, for example, but he can also play further forward. If he's fit, does Andrew start? Yes or no? As a, as a great man once said, and that man is David Brent, different drinks, 
for different occasions. Different midfielders for different opposition. Let's mix it up. Let's keep quite in the office because it's fun and entertaining. Frey Bentos. In a short answer, yes. I'd also say if we ever move to a three at the back and do a three four two one, he is prime for one of those two positions. Just behind Bishop, he would clean up there. And I don't know if we ever will do it three back. I know some people love it, some people hate it, some people like to sit on the fence. And, you know, we might not ever do it. But if we do, if Massinio just decides to change it for whatever reason, then he is starting there. And if we do three, four, one, two, which is a personal favourite of mine, he's that one in the hole. But in terms of the current system we're playing, yeah, he's got to start, isn't he? Hopefully he can be fit and get 90s under his belt quickly. And hopefully the extra time we've got added from this international break will allow him to get up to speed quicker without missing games. I do think purely from a player mole point of view, he is the player we've been missing. And I'm glad that Pompey had gone out and signed him. It adds so much to this midfield. And fingers crossed it works out. I always leave a surprise question when we do the prep for these guys. So they have no idea what I'm going to ask now. Who is your player of the month for... August. You can include the last game as well, I think. Personally, I have to go for Regan Paul. He's the most solid player out of all the players we've signed. The ball playing centre half we've been missing for years. Excellent range of passing. Positionally, always in the right place. Quickens the tempo as well. So the play around the back isn't slow when we've got loads of possession. He is one of the major reasons why Pompey have been this defensively solid. And although Connor Shochnessy has surprised us a fair bit and has been starting rather than a bit of backup player, I think Paul has been, even I had the reservations just by looking at the analytics, I then thought about the situation he was in. He's proved me wrong completely. I knew he was a good player anyway, but he's looks like he could be up there. By the end of the season, we might even be saying he's one of the best centre-halves in the division, I think. I think he's been excellent. Geoff, who's your player of the month? You can include the Peterborough game, I think. Regan Paul was my first pick. And Jack's looking at me as if I'm going to say his pick. I've got two picks, so it's a 50-50. And I'm going to go with our goalkeeper. Jack's kicked off. No, I'll change it up. I'm going Rafferty. I really liked his crossing in the first few games of the season. Really, really liked it. His red card wasn't a red card. Not enough camera angles. That's ridiculous. It's like in the any rugby fans in the Six Nations when there's a VAR decision. The French TV directors decide to lose the footage and they can't make the correct decision. It's nonsense. It wasn't a red card. He was really, really good for us in terms of crossing. I think it registered three assists, which is, you know, assists are sometimes a bit of a silly metric. You know, expected assists, we said we prefer here, but his crossing's been fantastic and defensively solid part of loads of clean sheets. So I'm going to go with Rafferty and let Jack take Will Norris. William James Norris. I love him. I think he's so, so good. And he's just... You have concerns about him as well, so that's very surprising. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wasn't that I was concerned he would be bad. I just thought there were better options on the market. And I'm so happy to be proven wrong because, oh my God, what a goalkeeper. The only thing he's not amazing at is claiming crosses and he's still above average at that. I think his distribution is a joke. It's so good. Every pass is laser-guided. Shot stopping, really good. Uh, looks great in a baseball cap. And, you know, all round good egg. Just seems like a nice guy. So, yeah, for me, it is Will Norris. I think he's utterly smashed my expectations for him. Handsome fella too. So, you know, shout out to William James Norris. Again, full name treatment. 
talk about like peaking peak late in your career. I know we're a month into the season and he could go on to have a series of clangers and lose all of his confidence. But, you know, someone who's never really been first choice or, or never, I don't know, you, you kind of get my train of thought, but at 30 years old, he's arrived at Portsmouth with not stick, but a bit of frustration maybe and, and confusion around why we signed him. And he's, he's just utterly smashed it so far. So yeah. William James Norris is my player of the month. I also loved the Coca-Cola branded cap that looks like it was older than all of us that he was wearing at the weekend. I think that's a class touch. Not wearing, not doing a Thomas Tuchel and wearing all branded merch from the club shop. He's just got a Coca-Cola cap from 1994. So Barclays. So Barclays. I love it. I think it says a lot that all of our picks were in the defensive unit and it makes sense, doesn't it, that we've only conceded two goals in the league this season and defensive solidity has not really been something that fans have moaned about and I mean yes I don't think I didn't think Swanson's defending was brilliant in for the um for the Peterborough goal allowing the winger to cut in on a strong foot but come on that's one of the probably one of the few defensive lapses that we've had I think in the league anyway it seems like such a solid unit and thankfully it's almost as if we don't have to worry about it to a certain degree I mean that might change later on but so far anyway I've been very pleased with that Right, that's the end of the third episode of the PO4 Upcast Extra. We will be back next month where we go through September and your list of questions as usual. Thank you so much, Joff, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been a pleasure to record going into international break unbeaten. It's a very good start to the season. And hopefully when we're back to record the next one, we will still be unbeaten, hopefully top of the league. And thanks for coming on the show, Jack. It's been a pleasure. And uh, try not to get into any more fights at the pub or on Twitter. Oh, well, you know, they're just, they're fearful of my peak masculinity and, and sometimes that masculinity gets challenged. And, and what can I say? I try, I try and stop conflict, but you know, you can't help it sometimes. But yeah, cheers, mate. It's been a, it's been an utter pleasure. Up the XG shaggers. XG superior to most stats, but not all. Uh, those people are just jealous of you, mate. It, it, it's it, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I think we've all been there with the same stuff. But no, we, we'll be back next month on the PO Forecast. Fingers crossed for the main show this upcoming week that we'll come up with that. And uh, shame that an international break has come up, but looking forward to Derby away. We'll see what comes up with that. So until next time, play up Pompey. <laughs>